Okay, today we're going to be in Judges 5. Judges 5. Today we're going to be in Judges 5. Now the last time that I did the Bible study, we did, uh, we covered obviously chapter 4, and we went into the two judges, Deborah and Barak. Today we're going to see the victory song of Deborah and Barak. Now understand this, in that culture, especially with the, the Jewish people, songs and poems were often used to express themselves and also for a memorial to successive generations. So we're going to go into a song, um, you know, it's going to be different than what we're used to, but this is how they did it, and we're going to take it apart and see what they're saying through this song. Obviously in the song, it's a victory song because uh, in four, they had the victory over the enemies, and now they're celebrating it with this song. Okay, verse 1. Song of Deborah and Barak. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. So the first line in the song, it, it, it's so, there's so much to it. It says, when leaders lead in Israel, then the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. So the leaders are leading and everybody else is obedient and God is blessed. Simple equation, right? When people do what they're supposed to do, God is blessed. And everybody benefits. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? When God calls us to do what we're supposed to do, when God calls us to stay away from things that we should stay away from, we benefit because he designed us a certain way and if we follow those guidelines, we'll do okay. Verse 3, it says... She says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. This, is, this was a little bit tough to study because, um, you know, of the wording. Now, what I did was I have a, a Bible that has uh, four different translations. So as I was studying it, I was just looking at how the different translators put subtle nuances into it. And this is what I got out of it. But verse 3, she says, But pretty much pay attention, kings and princes, because God is the one with whom the victory uh, ultimately comes. Sure, Barak and Deborah had the victory, but it was because of God that was behind them that they were victorious. And verses 4 and 5. Now, oftentimes in these victory songs, we've seen other songs in the Old Testament, other so-called poems. Uh, what happens a lot is the people of God recount the marvelous works of God and his deliverances um, you know, from their enemies. And I think this is a good thing that the Jewish people do this. I think we can learn a lot from this because, just like the stones, remember when they would set up the memorial, when they, would, they, take, they took over Canaan, they crossed the Jordan, and they set the stones up as a memorial? That was a sign to successive generations. This is what the Lord did for us. Here, he delivered us from these people. Here, he opened the Jordan River. And I think it's good for us to see these things because when we pray, do we often just kind of ask God for what we need or do we, or do we thank him? I mean, we've been delivered from things, haven't we? 
how many of us, I mean, if you've lived long enough, have gotten some type of health scare and we're still here, right? Or some type of financial trouble and you're still here. You're not out there begging bread. So I think, you know, I, I thank God. I know this is kind of off on a side note. I thank God a lot of times for the things that we haven't got. In other words, all my neighbors, because we live in a rural area, have got Lyme disease. My family is the only one who has it out of the whole block. Now, I'm not, it's not a haughty prayer, but I'm like, you know what, Lord, we don't need Lyme disease now. We've got enough trouble. So I'm thankful that we don't get Lyme disease. So we really need to, if we start to thank the Lord, and we really think about thankfulness, we could probably spend a long time in prayer, right? Verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. The village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. What they're saying here is um, starting in the beginning, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. So... In this, remember, if you remember in this period of time, the Canaanites were, were ruling. You know, they were oppressing the children of Israel. So basically, it was like a bad neighborhood. It was unsafe to walk the streets. If you took the main highways, you know, the oppressors would come and beat you up and take your money, assault you, whatever. So what happens was the children of Israel oftentimes would take the back roads, you know, so they didn't have to get victimized by these people. In a patriarchal society, though, we see that Deborah arose as a mother of Israel. Now, in the last chapter, we saw that God gave Barak through Deborah. She was a prophetess. He gave him a commission to go and defeat Israel's enemies. And she was very clear with him. And he said, well, I'm not going to go unless you come with me. So what does it say in a patriarchal society that the men were cowering and the women, you know, in this case, a woman rose up to, to lead Israel, Right. It, it's not a good thing there. Um, and again, she was uh, honored, but he, was, he didn't get a full honor because he didn't do it the way the Lord wanted him to. Verse 8, it says that they chose new gods, meaning the children of Israel. The children of Israel chose new gods, and that was the precursor to all the following bad things that took place. Number one, they had war. Now, turning your back on God will always be a, a precursor to turmoil in your life. So if we turn our backs on God and we choose other gods, we may not have war, but there'll be something that'll be turbulent in our lives. Even when, as believers, we become double-minded and we start walking away from the Lord, there's going to be turmoil in our lives. It's just going to happen. Number two, they also had disarmament. Turning your back on God will cause you to be defenseless. The oppressing people came and disarmed the children of Israel. So even if they wanted to fight, they had nothing. They had to use farm implements. You see what I'm saying? Um, and there's a spiritual application there. Certainly, the armor of God, Ephesians 6, right? We know that the different pieces of armor that we're supposed to uh, prepare ourselves with spiritually, you know, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the waistband, the belt of truth, and the feet shod with the gospel of peace. So in a spiritual sense, if we don't have any armor, we're defenseless physically, and we're also defenseless spiritually if we don't have those pieces. On a historical note, um, I found this amusing that they were disarmed by the, uh, by the uh, pressing forces. If you look at Hitler, if you look at any of the, the world's worst dictators, they always implemented gun control and taking away the people's right to defend themselves 
before they came in and took over, right? So the people couldn't uh, rise up. Verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10. Uh, it says, My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. And speak, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road. Now, these were the leaders. The leaders would ride on white donkeys, okay? Or leaders would ride on horses, but there was a, a certain type of uh, procession that they had that you would know, oh, that guy's somebody important. He's a leader. So the leaders, as well as the subjects, willingly offered themselves. And incidentally, this is the only time the Lord can use us. Now we see in the world, uh, even in our country, leaders, you know, they, uh, they lead and do they really pay much mind to God? Most of them probably don't. Uh, even after Corzine got into that awful car wreck, um, I don't know that his attitude really changed that much. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's a shame because I think that God allows these things to get their attention. But here, the leaders were so humbled. I mean, they were leaders, but they were oppressed by another country. So they were willingly, you know, they were saying, hey, maybe it's time that, you know, we do the right thing here. So everybody was on board, the leaders and the subjects. Uh, so the Lord heard the cries of the people, but he, the Lord only sprang into action when they humbled themselves. Otherwise, it would be a waste of the Lord's time. And it's the same thing today. If we're being headstrong and haughty, um, why would the Lord hear our prayers? Why would the Lord reward us if we keep going further and further away from him? Uh, Psalm 51.7 says it best, or 51.17. It says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God sees that and he's like, I'm not going to despise that. That is something I'm going to honor. And unfortunately, you know, people have to be humble to get to that point before things start to go right again. That's when deliverance takes place. Verse 11. Far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Now, again, the cool thing about this is when you study the Bible and you really study it and you go into the cultural aspects and the historical aspects, a lot of things come to life. So you see this thing about the archers and you're like, what's the deal with the archers? Well, I'll get to that. The watering places. The watering places and the wells were the center of village life. Think about it. Today we have running water. Do we really need wells? You may have a well in your house, but it gets pumped into your pipes and into your sink and all you have to do is open the spigot and the water comes out. Well, back then, you know, you can't live without water. Food, you can go a few days, water, a lot less time. So people would go down to the wells or the watering places, and that's where village life surrounded by these wells. Now, knowing that, um, one source believes that the archers there, in, in a sense, a historical source said that what the archers would do was, it's really barbaric and brutal, but remember, they're oppressing these people. They don't care about them. You know, their family is back in wherever they came from. So what they, the archers would do is they would take target practice on the people as they would go back and forth to the wells. That's pretty sick, isn't it? This is what people do to each other. Another source said that the Canaanites dominated the wells, which would make sense, right? They, they control the resources and the subsequent traffic there. The wells were also where gossip and news was exchanged. If the enemies won, they would boast in themselves. 
but since the children of Israel won, they boasted of the of the Lord. Okay, and uh, it also talks about going into the gates. It says, I'll just read that again. It says, There they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Now, when, because the Lord won, the people would feel comfortable to go down to the gates. And if you know, again, more about history, where the gates were was almost like the municipal complex in a township. The gates were open, and the, you know, the judges would sit in the gates, the nobles would sit in the gates. Of course, that changed when they were taken over by another country. So what he's saying is now, people will feel open now to go back out to the gates and to resume normal life instead of hiding in the shadows and going through the back roads. See? So things are turning around for the children of Israel here. And verse 12 basically was remembering the call to battle. Verse 13. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, rulers came down. And from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. This just shows the basic, basically the tribes who came down as part of the war effort. Almost like a recruiting or a volunteering. You know, who wants to sign up and and defend the people of Israel and fight against the oppressors and send them packing. So you had these different people would come down and sign up for this uh, war effort. Verse 16. Or it says, And as Issachar, the end of 15, As Issachar, so was Barak sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there was great resolve of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their life to the point of death, Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. Now taking this apart, there were those who helped, and there were those that didn't help. And we saw that all through Israel's history, even the two and a half tribes um, before crossing over the promised land you know, uh, Reuben, Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh said hey can we stay over here in the east side you know we, we really want to stay here we don't really care much about the promised land and Moses is like, Moses is like listen you know, we're not going through this again uh, or was it Joshua Joshua we're not going through this again um, you know the Lord said we need to take Canaan so they actually volunteered their fighting men and then they went back and crossed back over to the east side of the Jordan but Reuben was one of the tribes on the east side and his attitude, it, it appears from the scripture that he was thinking about going and helping but he had a change of heart and it says Reuben had to search his heart um, almost as if to say, hey we did our share we did this once, we're, we're not going to go help you again we're going to stay here on the east side so they seemed like they pondered it but they declined now Gilead is in Manasseh these are just some locations here uh, again, half the tribe of Manasseh was also on the east side. Dan and Asher were the west coastal tribes. That's important because there was a well-known coastal city of Joppa. Uh, Peter was at Joppa. Okay? Joppa was even famous post-biblical times. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it's still a, a pretty prominent city in the Middle East at this time. But Dan probably was doing too well in the shipping industry. Think about it. A lot of, if you owned, or if you, your tribe was by the coast, 
and you controlled the ships that were going north and south or west across the Mediterranean, there was a, an ability to make some good money there, all right? Each tribe had something that was of value to them. So it seems that Dan was probably doing too well to come and fight. Actually, it's kind of tragic when a brother won't help you out. It's, you know, the, they were all related. You know, they were all the children of Israel. They were all God's people. And some of the tribes were like, no, you know, we have something better to do, or they made excuses, and they didn't come and help in the war effort. Now, verse 18 is a big contrast because it says, Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their own lives to the point of death, Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. So you have the slackers in the last two uh, contrasted with those who gave valiantly. And it kind of shows what God thinks of the contrast between those who were cowardly and self-serving and only thought of themselves and didn't want to help, and those who were brave and answered the call to battle. Okay, uh, Obviously, the two tribes that, that were honored very greatly were these two uh, tribes that gave of themselves to fight. And I kind of think of, um, with all the craziness going on in this country, uh, we send 19, 18, 20-year-olds over across halfway across the world to fight in the battle and you know what uh, I really have a profound respect for our military and any military uh, that's looking to serve honorably because you know when they sign up they say listen we, you know we want to be the few that want to protect our country and there's not a lot of money in it and when somebody calls them to battle whether they like the war or not they go and fight so it, it really says something about a person who especially is young and gives of their life meaning that it could be given up to fight in a war to protect our borders. Uh, so again, you can see um, things happening today. And then you have those who, whatever, I'm not going to go into political stuff here. <laughs> That's not what we do. Um, okay, you know, the San Francisco who banned the, mil the Marines from coming in and shooting photos for a, uh, you know, whatever. So there I said it. You know, you got those who are honorable and you, you those who are dishonorable and dishonor our uh, military, and I think that's disgraceful. So that's just, I, I, agree, I feel strongly about that. Verse 43, or actually, I want to read one page out of Wearsby, page 43. You have to follow along with me here. He says, keep in mind that during this period in history, every man did what was right in his own eyes. When Joshua was the commander of Israel's armies, all the tribes participated. But when Barak summoned the forces, only half of them went to war against Jabin. The people of God today are not unlike the people of Israel when it comes to God's call for service. Some immediately volunteer and follow the Lord. Some risk their lives. Some give the call serious consideration but say no. And others keep to themselves as though the call had never been given. That's so awesome. Again, I didn't want to paraphrase what he said. He said it best. And you do see that. When you, we look at battles now as Christians, we, as churches, is God calling us to go and draw the sword and go somewhere and fight the pagans? No. We're supposed to love them as Christ did. But we fight a spiritual battle. And there are some in ministry who will sacrifice a lot. Relationships, financial gain, um, their time time with their family for the ministry and serving God. And then there's some all the way at the other end who say, yeah, you know, maybe I might be interested, but, um, you know, what's the cost? If, if there's, you know, I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that and, you know, this might affect this. And they start looking at their own things that they have in their lives and they just don't want to do it. 
and you see everything in between. So you see a, a very good parallel between God's people. We all need to do something, even if it's something small. Uh, we need to use our gifts to, to fight in that spiritual battle, to win souls to Christ, to disciple people, to be a good example. And there's some that just don't do anything. And you can see that in the scripture. Pretty sad. And we see who God honors and who he doesn't. Verse 19. The kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. O oh my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Moraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Okay. So what you see here is some interesting things are happening here. God uses the supernatural and he manipulates the weather patterns, which he can do to help the children of Israel defeat the Canaanites against those uh, chariots of iron. Because we know if you have a bunch of men and you have on the other side a bunch of chariots of iron, 900, and you don't have them, it's like fighting in a war. You're on horseback and the opposing enemy has tanks. Um, and we saw that in Poland in World War II against the Germans. The Polish didn't do very well. But we're dealing with God who can take those odds and turn them around, and he, and he did that. According to the historian Josephus, in this instance... God caused the Kishon River to overflow and to turn a dry battlefield, which chariots would do very well in, okay? He turned a dry battlefield into a muddy mess. The chariots got bogged down in the mud and became useless. So it's kind of cool when you study the scripture and you study other ancient texts that, that back up the scripture, what actually happened in this battle? Again, apparently, supernaturally, the, the battlefield was a muddy mess and the chariots weren't going anywhere, and it was more of a hindrance now to be in a chariot than to be out on foot. So they lost the battle. I just love it. it reminds me of, I'm just a big history buff. I like to study, um, you know, people and wars and all that stuff. In World War II, if you know your history, the Germans came out with the Panzers, and then they came out with the Tiger-class tanks. These tanks were big, they were heavy, they were powerful, and they annihilated the Allied tanks. But... Oftentimes, in wet, snowy, muddy conditions, the Tiger tanks were so big and heavy that they would get bogged down and, and they, would, they couldn't get out. And they were useless to the Germans. So it's amazing how history repeats itself, isn't it? Verse 23. I have to read this over because, again, this kind of exemplifies what I was talking about with helping and not helping. Curse Moraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly. That's pretty heavy coming from God. But they did not come to help because they did not come to help to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty. Isn't that wild how, does God really need us? Think about it. God is, is, is omnipotent. He, he can do all things. But God at times says, hey, I want you to enjoy the fruit of my labor. He employs us to help him, right? And he doesn't have to do that. Does God need us to give the gospel? No, of course he doesn't. As a matter of fact, a lot of Christians probably butcher the gospel. But that just shows God's grace on us feeble people that he allows us to preach. There's only, there's very few times, there's one time that I remember in the book of Revelation where the angel is, is, is flying across the heavens and preaching the everlasting gospel. But up until that point, people are doing it, right? He could have the angels do it all the time. They probably would do a heck of a lot better job than we would. But he employs our help. 
So when God says, I need your help, I'd like you to help me, come alongside of me, and we say, eh, nah, it, it's offensive to God, it really is. And so much so that this town, Miraz, he curses them. Now, Miraz, a town in northern Israel, uh, possibly Galilee or the Naphtali area, um, and I think it's a warning to those who would sit the fence as Christians. I want to read two scriptures. You know what I find really cool when something is said in the Old Testament and the exact same thing is said in the New Testament. Proverbs 3.27 says this. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Now, if you don't have the power to do good and God says do it, but you don't have the power to do it or it doesn't give you the power, that would be kind of mean, wouldn't it? But God is saying, listen, if it's within your power to do good, don't withhold it to do good to somebody. Watch James 4.17. This is awesome. James 4.17. He says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That's pretty heavy. If you know to do good, <laughs> and you can do it, and it's within your power, and God's called you to do it, and you don't do it. That's sin. That's the sin of omission. Pretty heavy stuff. Verse 24. We're winding it up here. Most blessed among women is Jael. We get back to that. The wife of Heber, the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water. She gave him milk. We're talking about Sisera here. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched out her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head and gave him a splitting headache. No, she split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. The first, first line, most blessed among women is Yael in Hebrew. Okay? Who else do we hear that said of? Mary, right? The one to bring forth Jesus. Um, so this shows you what God thinks of Yael and what she did in, in this instance here. Um, some people have a hard time with justice in the Bible because we're so used to being in the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus, but as hard for it is for people to understand it, God is no different in the Old Testament than he was in the New Testament. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law of Moses, but I came to fulfill it. I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill it. When the woman was caught in adultery, she had every right, or they had every right to stone her because she was caught in that act. But Jesus said to them, listen, Jesus didn't nullify capital punishment. He said, any of you who is without sin, I want you to be the first one to cast a stone. And from the oldest to the least, they dropped their stones. They were hypocrites. They brought her out. They let the guy go. They were testing Jesus. And Jesus, he had the mind of God. Who else would have thought of how to preserve this woman's life but still preserve the law and show these guys what hypocrites they were. It's like he covered it all with one fell swoop, right? Pretty awesome stuff. But justice in the Bible. You see, we know that there's coming a time when God will impute justice. But because he's so long-suffering and loving, he's given mankind all this time. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. Try to do it on your own. Try to do it through hardship. Try to do it through this. And, and he's given us a lot of time to do it, to come to him. But there will come a time where, where the grace period will end and justice will resume again. And again, that's hard for people to digest, but again, it's the society we live in. We look at people who commit crimes against children 
and we think that they'll probably get a slap on the wrist, they'll get another chance, they'll get to go to a mental health facility. But honestly, in the Old Testament, done, done. We're just used to, we're almost deprogrammed to seeing the world the way it is, although the world the way it is is not proper. There needs to be justice. Okay, yeah, even, oh, one, one very interesting point about that. Carla Faye Tucker uh, was executed, what, eight, nine, ten years ago in Texas? She, in a, in a drug-induced raid, she used a, a, an axe and she brutally murdered two people. Uh, she becomes, in, in prison, she becomes converted. She becomes a Christian. And a lot of people were fighting to get her released. And she said it was awesome. I mean, she led some guards to Christ. This woman was a light in that prison. I really believe she had a true conversion. And she said to the media, she goes, you know what? I did something, and this is what the consequences are. You know, I will see my Lord in heaven. So it's like she was even able to see, hey, she didn't say get me out of here. She had a whole prison ministry going on while she was on death row and changed people's lives. So it's pretty amazing stuff there. So Yael was a hero. Um, and we got the picture there. Verse 28. The mother of Sisera looked through the window. Okay, this is the mother of the bad general, right? And cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies answered her, Yes, she answered herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil? To every man a girl or two? For Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. I'll stop there. This is a sad picture of the mother of the enemy leader waiting for her son to come home. Obviously, he never makes it. Endlessly looking out the window and he never comes back. A picture of hope that turns out to be a false hope. Believing, well, you know, he's the commander of 900 chariots of iron. Surely... They'll be back soon. Um, But a false hope is anything that you expect to save that's not rooted in Jesus Christ. Dividing the spoil. Basically, again, the spoils of war. War is not pretty. Uh, There's very few nations that have a military that will go into a country, win the war, and not abuse the people. Um, Dividing the spoil. Basically, stealing from the people that you have militarily brutalized. So the dyed garments were worth money, okay? That's why they're talking about that. Certain dyes were very rare. So if you could get, uh, in New Testament times, purple. Lydia was a seller of purple. Uh, If you could get a bunch of those dyed garments, you could sell them and make a lot of money. You you would do well for yourself. Taking a girl or two. Again, I'm not going to go into detail, but I think you understand as adults the picture of this. The enemy soldiers. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, Not pretty picture. This is what the, again, these people who were the family of the enemies uh, thought that this was normal. You know, a girl under each arm, some dyed garments. Any minute now they'll come over the horizon and they'll come with all the plunder. It didn't happen. Verse 31, last verse. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years. Verse 31 says it all in summation. The entire Bible can be summed up by this one verse. There's many choices in life, okay? Number one, let, thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord. So that's the truth. In the end, when justice is meted out, all the enemies of the Lord will perish. They will get their, their just reward. There won't be a, a dream team of defense attorneys that can get them off the hook. If you're guilty and you're not covered under the blood, that's it. 
The other part is, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. To us who live on this earth, one of the most powerful things that we experience is the sun that comes out. Uh, how many thousands of miles away is it? And when that thing comes up, man, it can burn you, right? It, it sustains life through photosynthesis. It, it keeps us from freezing to death, right? So the sun is, is very powerful. And it says, let those who, and again, in, in those days, when you looked at the sun, that was the best example of something that shined bright, had power, had light, had everything that you needed for, uh, for sustenance. And, um, and that's basically it. Life can be summed up in these two verses. Let's pray.